Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. The scripture text for our pastor sermon today comes from the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, if you want to read along, it's in, on page 981 of the Pew Bible. Saints of God, I just encourage you to drink in the very words of God that have been preserved for you for thousands of years. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Word of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would protect your people from anything that this one might say that is not according to your truth, Lord, that you would give us grace to proclaim your word, and Lord, that we would not ignore your word, that we would not walk out of here and be done with this hour, but Lord, that we would bear fruit from this word, that we would hear your word, and it would transform our thinking to some degree, and it would it would change our lives, that there would be progress because of this, that there would be real change, that we will hear you when you say, you hear these things, blessed are you if you do them. Lord, may we um, not be satisfied until we see the fruit of your word in our lives. Lord, this will not happen on our strength. It will happen by your your spirit working. And so we rest in you. Overcome everything in us, Lord, that would uh, that would sandbag the precious waters of the gospel from producing the new life in our lives. Lord, may this word truly, as Paul says, work in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, years ago, when we were living in Columbus, Mississippi, our oldest son, Chase, uh, went to Camp Alpine in northeast Alabama, which happens to be pretty close to my hometown, Gadsden. And there are the foothills of the Appalachians, really nice mountains, not the full uh, Smokies, but a nice beginning of them in northeast Alabama. So Camp Alpine, Chase was there, I believe this was a two-week stay, and he was about 10 years old. We had been given a scholarship, actually, from some former Camp Alpiners, and we were very happy for that. So we come, the whole family, to get Chase on a uh, end of a week, probably a Friday or Saturday, and 
We arrive and, and there's our little 10-year-old. He's got his white alpine shirt on, it's a green alpine, and he's got his handkerchief, you know, and his white shorts. And I mean, just the cleanest, wonderful little camper you've ever seen, you know. And uh, as most boys would have, if you've got a 10-year-old brother and a 6-year-old brother, there's possible conflict here and there every once in a while. And so they had their share of conflict. But that day, uh, Chase actually took John Darwin by the hand and took him all around the camp. And we were behind him and we even filmed it. And there was a funny little incident where they were kind of walking by the little river and John Darwin slipped into it, just disappeared almost and pulled back up. And we still laugh at John Darwin looking down, what got me, you know, and all these cute little things that happened. And, and John Darwin would just look up to Chase and Chase would talk about this or that. And he'd just keep looking up to Chase and looking up to Chase. Just the sweetest thing, warms your parents' heart. Maybe we're not crazy after all. You know, all those kinds of things. So, um, a few days later, everything was back to normal, okay? And about three or four days after, John Darwin came up to my, my wife, Kay, and he said, Do you think Chase could put on those white shorts again? <laughs> <laughs> Those white shorts seem to make all the difference in the world. <laughs> um, and wouldn't it be nice if, in living the Christian life, if God would just hand out some white shorts, you know? Um, the Christian life is difficult. It's, it's difficult to struggle with your desires. It's difficult sometimes as well to figure out, how do I do this? And one of the major struggles that I see that I talk to people about is this whole issue of trying and trusting. Self-effort that at the same time is supposed to be full of the most helpless dependence upon God. Because our helpless dependence seems to speak against wholehearted vigorous action, throwing yourself into the warfare. They seem to go against each other. And in fact, you'll have some people all the time emphasizing, it seems, you know, discipline and effort, decisions, commitment, duty, sacrifice, self-denial. But then others are saying, no, you can't change yourself. Only God can. Uh, it depends on God and not man. So there's nothing you can do. Self-effort and duty lead to failure, frustration, or they, they lead to self-righteousness. They lead to an external hypocrisy, an ugliness of character rather than a sweetness of character. You simply abide, trust Him, and He will change you. Now, of course, uh, I've entitled this trusting and trying, so probably suggests that you do both. But I don't want you to think of it as remember to trust and put forth effort as though they're two unconnected boards that are just nailed together. Be sure you do this and that. But I would I will want to show that they're really a part of the same godly response in all helpless believers hurl themselves into the activity of sanctification.
and only helpless believers truly, in a godly way, throw themselves into the activity of growth and sanctification. So that they are always together. Godly, let's put it this way, godly trying is always full of godly trusting. And godly trusting is always full of godly trying. Now, you might find what seems to be trusting. You know, I'm helpless and wallowing, moping, uh, in despair, etc. And that goes by the way of I'm helplessly in God's hands. But that's not a godly helplessness. Or there may be tons of activity and seems to be vigorous discipline that if you really got underneath it, it would be like 1 Corinthians 13. You might give your body to be burned. You might give away all your possessions, Paul says, and you have no love and you've done nothing, not even scratch the surface in terms of obeying God, even though there's all of this activity. So, why uh, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, probably, is, at least as, as good as any other place, do we have both elements so blatantly stated in the same spot that he would say, and I, I hope you will turn to this passage and have it open before you in uh, Philippians 12, uh, 2, 12, and 13. Because on the one hand, he says, not just work out your, you know, if it's be one thing to work out your travel plans or work out your wedding plans, etc., work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that, that would seem to put the whole thing on your shoulders. But then you turn to verse 13 and it puts the whole thing in the hands of God. He's the one who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And they're both side by side. Now, the tendency that we have in a a passage like this is to downplay one or the other. The tendency is to uh, push one or the other off the side. So that if you're emphasizing the the first part, you might say, all right, God's going to help you along, but it's really up to you. You've probably heard it put that way. And of course, the, the great non-biblical quote, God helps those that helps themselves. You know, We've used that over and over, and of course, it's not in the Bible. It was a, maybe a pagan came close to saying that uh, 2,000 uh, years ago plus. But um, God will help us along, but it's really up to us because it, it's as though God will help you, but you work out your salvation. Or the other is... Look, our responsibility is simply to rest in God's grace. Let him work in us. And I've read, I've read books that have actually quoted repeatedly verse 13 with no reference to verse 12, stating explicitly, you cannot and must not try because it's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So therefore, you only trust. And if you try, you get in the way. Even though, right before that, it says, you must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, Paul doesn't think he's contradicting anything here. He is setting before us uh, what a human being does, and he's setting before us what God does in, in a full and rich 
way. And we're going to look at this not just this week, but in the week to, uh, next week as well, uh, to look at different aspects of it. Now, one word that probably jumps out at you, as it should, is this word salvation. You know, work out your own salvation. Um, especially when you consider a passage like Romans chapter 4, verse 5, that uh, speaks in this way. Romans 4, verse 5 says, uh, He justifies the ungodly so that there, it, there can be no earning or working out of any kind of salvation because God saves you even though you're ungodly. And it actually says, to the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so any work that we would bring to the table in regard to salvation, it would appear to be... Uh, It cannot be mentioned in the same language. So we need to look just quickly at this word salvation because it doesn't mean work out your own conversion, you know, uh, or work out your uh, the, the way you're going to be accepted by God. Work out however you can get a right relationship with God. Because these things we read in Scripture are gifts to us. But the word salvation is a comprehensive word in Scripture. It covers everything from A to Z in what God does for us in bringing us to Himself and finally bringing us to heaven. Well, salvation, because it's a complete word and a comprehensive word, it's also a flexible word, pliable. It could, it could apply to any aspect of are being saved. For instance, it's used in the past tense and present tense and future tense to show that it has different meanings. Let me just give you a few examples. In Titus 3.5, we read, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Or similarly, 2 Timothy 1.9, He saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His purpose and grace. So there's one aspect of being delivered initially out of darkness into a relationship with God, out of deadness into life with God, into this new life and relationship and communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's been done. He saved you. You are in a saved state. However, he then says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or 2 Corinthians 2.15, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And so there's this aspect of, I am saved, but I'm now being saved. That would have to do with my growth in Christ, my being more conformed to Christ, getting rid of sin in my life, growing closer to Him, more rich in my worship, etc. All the changes that are occurring in my life, that continues to be salvation. We tend to think of, I'm saved, and now God's doing other things. Every part of your life in terms of change is salvation. 
He continues to save you from doing this and this and this and this and saving you to new and ever newer character and development and transformation into Christ's image. So every day of your life, you're being rescued, you know, or the rescue is ongoing. You're in fellowship, in relationship, and now that means an ongoing transformation that's still being called salvation. And then you'd think... Having been saved, you would never say, you will be saved. You say, oh, no, 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 I will be saved. I am saved. And there's a sense in which that's true. Somebody says, you think you'll be saved one day? Oh, brother, brother, I am saved. You know, you don't want to make that point to somebody, especially if they're thinking maybe you'll be good enough to be saved one day. And you say, oh, brother, it doesn't work like that. I am already saved. I made that point uh, years ago when I was in college to uh, the um, Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons who came by the house. And uh, they talked about, you know, working and doing this and another thing, another thing, hoping that one day they would end up in heaven. And I said, well, I already know I'm going to heaven. You know, I was a little haughty about it, you know, but <clears throat> which may mean I wasn't. But anyway, um, but I was trying to make the point. I said, I already believe that I'm saved, that I already have a relationship with God. And I believe if I stood before God now that I would be delivered, you know, because I've already been saved. And it was interesting. This is a little parenthesis. This is free. You don't have to pay for this one today. But this little parenthesis, um, they actually said to me, well, then why do you do anything to obey him then? You see, their only motivation... Their only motivation was the hope that they could do enough good things to go to heaven. And they couldn't fathom, if I knew I was going to heaven, then why would I have a passion to obey him? If you already know you're going to heaven, hey, let's go, you know. No, no, that's the very reason I want to obey him is that I am saved. So these are important verbs, right? The verb tenses. But we read in uh, Romans 5, 9 and 10, since then we've now been justified, past tense, it's kind of a corollary to being saved. Now that we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God in that last day. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, there's saved in the past tense, much, now, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And many other places it talks about the future redemption. You think, no, I'm already redeemed. It even talks about your future adoption. Well, I thought I was already adopted. It's because there's a consummation of this salvation. Well, all of these things to say that when Paul is using the word salvation here, you have to get it from the context and in this context, in verses 1 through 4, he is urging them to live in uh, humility and oneness as the people of God. And especially it uh, kind of has an apex in those first four verses with the, the very uh, well-known verses. Do nothing, verse 3, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
challenging verses. And if we would live those out, the, the happiness that we would enjoy with one another. Then 5 through 11 is an example, the example of Christ, how he himself did not count himself, even the Lord Jesus, as more important. But he poured himself out for us and became a servant, became obedient even till death. And so he picks up the argument, therefore, my beloved, work out your salvation. What salvation? This aspect of counting others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but for the interests of others. So it's, it's speaking of the community being humble and broken before each other and loving each other. And then right after this, do all things without grumbling or questioning, being blameless, innocent children of God. So he's talking about growth here. But this word, work out, is a very strong word. To work out your own growth or sanctification. It's the combination. It's like a energized word for work. And it really means to, uh, to affect or do something by labor. It means to achieve something or accomplish something. Uh, to make an end or finish it. In some cases, it's to overpower, subdue, or conquer, and others to be brought to bring crops under cultivation. Because, so it's a strong word that has a final end in view. So he's really saying, and we can't blunt the edge of this, no matter how much the power ultimately depends upon God, you cannot blunt the edge of this statement. You achieve your growth completely. Do it. Okay? That is a command. And it's a present tense. Keep on accomplishing and achieving your growth in grace, we could put it. Now, we generally are not obeying that as fully and richly and enthusiastically as we could be. We coast so much of the time. We're in despair so much of the time. We're in retreat so much of the time. We're indifferent so much of the time. Instead of every year, every, this is interesting, we saw uh, at the, there, there was these, these clips of uh, different uh, battle scenes uh, recently that we saw that were used for, uh, as a kind of a comedy thing. But one of the clips was, uh, taking from Braveheart, the Scotsman running, you know, all painted blue at the enemy. And brothers and sisters, not recommending every part of that movie, but boy, that scene, you know, where they're uh, running to the battlefield, that should look like you and me. Every day, painted blue, we've got our tools in our head, and we're rushing down the, the field to fight the enemy. Every single day. Every hour of every day and evening. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes there's not a time for watching good thing on TV or, you know, playing with your kids. I'm not talking about literal, okay, but I'm talking about your heart, your devotion to say, Today, I, by God's grace, am going to achieve and accomplish my salvation. What a calling. 
What a magnificent calling you have every day and every relationship and every responsibility and every privilege you have. Every encounter with his creation or the culture in which you live is an opportunity for you and I to achieve our salvation and to grow in salvation. That's what Paul is doing. It is present tense. It is active. It is right on our shoulders. He tells us to do it. And we must beware, we must beware of using the excuse, it is God and not me, so there's nothing I can do. If we begin there, yes, Jesus tells us, you can do nothing apart from me. But those who are broken... Those who are truly broken and compliant and have given themselves freely and gladly and helplessly into God's will are the most energetic people on earth. And we must bring those two things together. The broken are the energetic. The humble are the strong. And we can't let one knock the other uh, off the playing field. But, of course, in the second place, uh, he has this four, <laughs> verse 13. Why can you do it? How can you do it? Why, how would you ever tell me to do something that's so ridiculous? It's practically suicidal. It's pointless. It's, it's empty. It's vain. Work out my salvation. Why four? It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is categorical. It is regular in Scripture. Uh, It is of a piece with other passages like Ephesians 1 that speaks of the resurrection of Christ. And it speaks of the power that raised him from the dead. And he turns this huge turret, you might say, like a tank that is so powerful in what it did to raise Christ from the dead, to set him at the right hand of God. And he turns that turret and he says, this power works in you now. And I want you to know that. I pray that you will know the power that is toward you, helpless believers. And later, the same thing in Ephesians 3. Later, the same thing in Ephesians 6, the power of God. In Ephesians 3, he says this, and you've heard me talk about this verse more than once, of course. To him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Ask away. Imagine the greatest thing. He's able to do far more abundantly. Way beyond. You can't see the end of what he will do for you. According to the power at work within us. Don't let the first part of Philippians 2, 12 and 13 blunt the second part. It's not up to you. It is up to you. But it's up to you by the mighty power of God. So let me just draw a few conclusions and we'll get on to this more and more as we go. So I want to give you this first warning. Don't confuse trust with inactivity. Never confuse trust with inactivity. Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith. But you could say Hebrews 11 is the chapter of action. By faith, 
they did and did and did and did and did and did. Think, if I'm going to believe, I better be in motion. (laughs) That doesn't mean that I don't have times where I meditate in Scripture and prayer. Of course. But those who believe, act. Daniel 11.32 says, The people who know their God, they know His power, they trust Him, they know His love and grace, that He saves them in their helplessness and brokenness and their darkness. He is that gracious, everlasting God who saves them, and they know Him and they trust Him in the New Testament context in Jesus Christ. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Don't confuse trust with inactivity. The helpless are the strong, the broken are the active, the humble are the energetic. But I want to say that with this second statement. So there's a warning, but there's also this wonderful call. You have the freedom to throw yourself into the battle by the power of God. That's the wonderful thing. There there are three things that we trust. We trust that we are utterly, completely forgiven of our sin inside and out. Every part of our lives now, we are forgiven by God. And so He embraces us wholeheartedly. We don't have to play like we don't sin. We don't have to hide. We don't have to have externals. We can dig into our ugly old hearts and admit what we are because God accepts us and it's manifested by the acceptance that we have in the people of God. And so I can hurl myself into fighting against my sin and not hiding it, making excuses for it. And I have the assurance that He is working within me. The mighty power of God that created the world is now focused upon me to change me. That enables me to throw myself into the battle. And then Romans 8 says, And He will work even your failures for His good. He is so powerful that I don't have to despair of even my failures. And I remember one man telling about his son who played quarterback saying that after a play when he uh, threw an incomplete pass and maybe it just made a stupid throw and it just, you know, for me, I would just think, oh, I could have made a touchdown. Oh, you know, I'm opening the next. Okay, I'm going to call someone, someone, someone. You can imagine walking up the quarterback. I should have thrown that touchdown. You're not going to throw another good pass, are you? I mean, it's just a simple thing playing football. So he says his... His son snaps the wristband. It's a reminder that plays over. He's got to throw himself completely into the next play as though he's been making every pass up to that point. He's going to make the next pass. That's the attitude he's got to have with the next play. And it's amazing psychologically and spiritually, emotionally, mentally that God wants you to be at that point point so that you are forgiven. You know His power. You know that He even surrounds all the things you've done in the past that have exploded and you feel like you can't even pick up the splinters of the mess of your life. And He can say, but I am yours and by His grace you hurl yourself into the future of obeying Him, of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember that Satan's great 
weapon is despair. John Bunyan, the giant despair, the castle. And I read a great fantasy series by Stephen R. Donaldson years ago, the Thomas Covenant series, and just a tragic, frightening passage where these giants who otherwise were on the good side, okay, and they were... Uh, a huge force to to fight the enemy, and yet through despair, one of their number who was possessed of the evil force went through as every one of them was in their house in despair and killed the whole city of giants because they had given themselves to despair. See, the gospel is to deliver you from despair. So that his joy is your strength. It's, the gospel is not against personal effort. It's to bring about the best human effort in the right direction. With the right support and understanding that everything comes from God. I bring nothing to the table, but because of him, I can throw myself into this glorious warfare against sin. For the glory of King Jesus. And, and be sure that the, the work of the gospel is not so that Christ works through you so to as avoid you. you know, I used to call it the garden hose theology. You know. uh, it's not me, it's all Christ through me. And I need to get out of the way so that it's just Christ coming through. As though the whole personality and character and everything of Darwin is just sitting on a shelf somewhere and is Jesus shooting through the garden hose. No. You actually are being transformed. You are. Paul can say, and this is not a haughty statement, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We are changed. We are remade. It's an Eastern idea that I'm somehow dissolved as a personality. And then it's only the deity that comes through without transforming us individually and collectively. So, you must not confuse. I must not confuse trust with an activity. And I must have the freedom to throw myself into battle, trusting in his forgiveness, trusting in his strength, and trusting in his sovereign work that he works all things together for good in my life. And I want to end with this, though, that it is because we believe and only because we trust in the fact that God is at work in us. Only the broken and helpless and dependent and expectant will live this way. And I want to underscore those two words of faith, uh, dependent and expectant. Dependent means I'm helpless, I can do nothing. Expectant means I really expect God to do great things for me. Faith is always both of those. Always both. You're broken And you are expectant. You are expectant. And that's why this is so precious. He doesn't just work for you to do the right thing, but to will the right thing. That's encouraging. He's going to work in you so that you desire, you want to do the right things. 
Oh, yes, Lord, I pray that you would do that. And always be bringing those desires and say, Oh, Lord, you promise right here your mighty power be working so that I will want to do your good will. But then it's also encouraging. You're not just going to leave me talking about it, wishing I could, daydreaming about it. You work in me so that I will work for you. I will really do different things. I will be a different person inside and out by your grace. And perhaps the greatest part of this verse is, and it's emphasized by Hawthorne's translation when he says, um, the one who effectively works among you, creating both the desire and the drive to promote goodwill is God. Well, the Greek actually emphasizes it by putting God first. But both of them capture the same thing. His point is not just God is work at you. It is God who's at work in you. That's what he's saying here. It is God. It is the unlimited, glorious, gracious God of steadfast love, unlimited resources and power. He is devoted to change you. Oh, brothers and sisters, what might each one of you become in the next year? I'm serious. And then a year after that, and a year after that, and a year after that. What might you be? God is at work in you. As Ephesians 2.10 says, we are His art pieces. Praise God that He has your hand, His hands upon you. Praise God that He's, He's taken you up. May we abide in Him and trust in Him and expect Him to do great things and be those people who know God Stand firm and take action. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you save us. You are saving us. You will save us. Thank you, Lord, that you've laid hold of us. You've rescued us. We would never have come to you, but you drew us to yourself. We never would have regarded you, but you're, you, you came and you, you wooed us. You worked in us. You poured out your spirit into our hearts. Oh, Lord, it is all all from your hand. We have done nothing to deserve it. We could do nothing to earn it. We could do nothing to change ourselves. You've raised us from death to life. We were utterly helpless. Now you've given us life. And because of that, Lord, we now, by your grace, have a renewed capacity as we completely trust in you and expect you to do things in our life to live wholly new lives because we are new in Christ Jesus. Give us grace that we will take this command seriously, this present command to work out, to achieve, to accomplish our salvation because it is God who is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. 
Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace 